Um, it is really good to be here. Some of you, I don't even, I don't even recognize. We we were here last week and tonight, and hadn't been here since mid-December. Maybe some of you have heard. Craig's mom is very ill. In fact, she's in hospice right now. So our trip over to see our daughter in England was bookended on both sides by going to Kenosha, Wisconsin, to see her. And you know, she's resting comfortably. And uh, we don't know. Could be a couple weeks. Could be months. Who knows? You can't tell in these things. But um, her her situation has me thinking a lot about inheritance. And lest you laugh or think that I am some kind of a cold-hearted mercenary, I'm not thinking about money and stuff. I'm thinking about the inheritance that she has already given us, those values and character traits that most definitely are part of a previous generation. Um, That woman is amazingly frugal and yet incredibly generous. And she's got a deep, deep love of learning that um, obviously benefited Craig well. And uh, very hospitable, very, very hospitable, great values. So that's the inheritance I think of when I think of her. And I think she would consider her two sons, Craig and Bob, to be her inheritance, her legacy. Those two are night and day. Ask us about it later. They could not be more different. But she's so amazingly proud of both of them. And I am quite sure she would say they are her delight, her inheritance, her treasured, treasured possessions, her sons, her pride and joy. And we are in Ephesians. We're going to be... Oh, I need the the clicker. That was awkward. Um, We are in Ephesians chapter 1. We're in a passage that starts for this very reason. For this reason. What reason? What this reason? What reason? If you were around the last couple weeks, you heard both Mike and Dave preach the first part of Ephesians chapter 1. And it goes on and on about all the promises that God has blessed us with. Dave called it, summarized it, God being toward us. The first part of the chapter talks about how God has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us. He's made his will known to us through the Holy Spirit. He's done all these things so that we can praise him and so that by the way we act in our lives, we bring him the glory and he gets the good news out of it. And the rest of chapter 1 that we'll look at tonight continues talking more about the riches and inheritance we have in Christ. We are indeed rich kids with a big inheritance. So let's look at the passage. We'll read it through. Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He starts incredibly effusive for a guy who's writing from house arrest. Pretty much certain that Paul was under house arrest in Rome, writing back to the Ephesians. He's heard that the church has grown a lot since he was last there. He's excited, and he says, I have never stopped giving thanks for you. Well, that's, that's saying a lot. But, you know, new life never grows old. I know I have friends who have overcome addictions, or they've changed patterns and habits in their life. They've changed the script that plays in their head um, so that it is a lot healthier. Some of them have come to faith despite their own obstinacy and others despite the ridicule of people around them. And I never cease to marvel or be grateful or thankful for their lives, their stories. I think it's good to remember and be thankful, even with the effusiveness that Paul has here. I keep asking that the Lord of our God, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you two things. Well, one thing, the ability to know him better through the spirit of revelation and that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, basically to know God better. And then he's going to tell us what he prays they know and understand better. And then he's going to tell us in this passage how to know that what he's talking about is true and real. I pray that you know God better through the spirit of revelation and wisdom. Now, this is sure. This is certain. This is a done deal because God has promised to reveal himself. It is his nature, his heartbeat, his throb is to reveal Reveal, to be known, to be known. And he does it through his Holy Spirit, promised to all believers. I mean, there are many times in the prophets, God would say something like, I will show you my greatness and my holiness. I will make myself known to the nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And he revealed himself most ultimately in Jesus, the word made flesh, dwelling among us. Do you see how... Every impulse of God is to be known. It's not a secret. It's not something available only to a select few. God wants to be known. He promised, Jesus himself promised the Holy Spirit. Ongoing understanding. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So this one's a done deal. Paul's basically praying almost a thanksgiving for what God has promised, has done, and is doing. The Holy Spirit 
will reveal God, his ways and his will and his character to us. He also prays that the eyes of their hearts could be enlightened. I think there's a little bit more of an ability for participation on our part here. A little bit more willingness to open our eyes and to see. Not to be like the two-year-old who says, you can't see me when their own hand is in front of their eyes. And you can see them perfectly well. But here's our opportunity for acknowledgement or surrender to understand God better. One of the things we got to do when we were with son and daughter-in-law who are huge film fans was watch the movie Arrival. Anybody see it? Arrival? Amy Adams plays a linguist, Louise Banks, who's part of a team sent up to Montana where one of 12 alien pods is hovering. Other countries around the world have alien pods hovering over them too. And her job is to start communicating with these extraterrestrials and they they're obviously they're not human they don't use words um i have to admit when their language their their language is kind of like splayed out in ink and often reminds me of our little symbol of our mission statement here for any of you who have seen it but anyhow she's a linguist she has to break through and and, and communicate with them and she comes to the understanding that Essentially, she's going to have to take a tremendous risk to go beyond her own humanness in order to enter into the mindset of these aliens. And I think when Paul prays that the eyes of our heart be enlightened, he's praying our willingness to submit to what could be risky, to what we may not at first understand, want to hear what might set us apart from all our friends, but to surrender so that God can take possession of me and give me his eyes to understand his perspective and to know his ways. Because we can refuse. We can refuse to see the obvious. We can be plain old dense. We can be too proud. But God can only give himself to a heart that is un cluttered with its own will and its own sense of self-sufficiency. And when the light goes on, when we are enlightened, um, makes me think of what my, my sister said when we were visiting New York. And she said, after 9-11, she was walking down the streets in lower Manhattan, and she thought, it, it looks different. And she realized that without the Twin Towers, there was light where there had used to just been shadows. And now light was filling the streets in ways it never had before. And it did indeed look different. It wasn't the psyche of the event. It was physically different. And when the light goes on, I think it's, it's something like that, where all of a sudden there's understanding where there had been shadows. And there is a sense of peace that comes from getting over that hump of my will and my ways and getting into the heart of God to understand his will and his perspective. When times are tough, I think this is what Paul is praying. The spirit of God is a done deal offering wisdom and revelation. And if we will open our eyes and allow the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, we can better know God's perspective. Well, he wants us to know God better in these ways. He's three specific things he's praying. 
the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power to us who believe, which I've called resurrection power, and you'll see why. The hope of his calling. An assurance that all the divine blessings that were promised earlier in the chapter are done deals. You know, wishful thinking is very subjective. I really wish this would happen. Well, it might or might not. But often we use hope that way too, like, well, I really hope this will happen. I don't know. Christian hope is objective. Christian hope is based on historical fact. Christian hope is based on that God kept his promises to Israel throughout the Old Testament. I mean, good and bad. You know, he said, worship me and I'll be with you. Diss me and you're going into exile. And that both happened. And he promised to restore them. And he did. And he promised them a Messiah. And he sent Jesus. And as prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus was raised again from the dead, unlike any other human being. He stayed alive, and he has ascended into heaven. And if all that which is in the past has been proven true, the hope to which he has called us, the hope we have for the future, I think is as secure and that we can be as confident of it as we can be confident of what has already happened. So Christian hope is based on objective fact. It's not wishful thinking, pie in the sky, cross your fingers, maybe, maybe not, throw the dice. It's not a crapshoot. It's a done, solid deal. We know the end of the story. We know our future as believers. We know that after death, we live with God. We know Christ will come again and will firmly establish his righteous, just rule over all this earth that all evil will be vanquished and that we will reign with him. We know these to be truthful statements. And knowing the security of the future should affect the way we live now. Hypothetical situation. Absolutely hypothetical. Let's say Craig and I are having a bad day. Bad patch of life. And I'm thinking, seriously? This is dull. This is rough. I'm not enjoying this. This is the next 20, 30 years of my life. Ugh. It's just tough. And then, accidentally, I happen to discover that he has bought tickets and made all the arrangements for us to have a week in Hawaii next fall. Is that going to affect the way I feel today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If I was worried about it being bored or him not loving me anymore or just too quiet and all of a sudden the security of what I know about the future comes back to affect me today. And I have more confidence I have more motivation to love. I have more peace and security. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters in Christ, the security of what we know is our future should put our present into a far different perspective. Paul prays that we may know the hope of God's calling, the security of resting in what we know is our future. 
He prays also that we know the riches of his, God's, glorious inheritance in his holy people. That's us, the believers. Now, for 62 years, well, no, I couldn't read when I was zero. As long as I have read scripture, I have simply looked at this phrase and thought, yep, God gives good things to his holy people. Isn't that great? Yep. But that is not what it says. That's not what the grammar says. And uh, what this is saying is that we are God's inheritance. We are what God considers valuable. We are his delight. We are treasured and valued by God. We are the riches of his inheritance. Now, imagine for a second that you had inherited a fistful of diamonds. That would be pretty sweet, huh? Clink them around in your pocket. That would be sweet. Imagine that you had individually in your own back room the ability to make diamonds. That would be pretty sweet. I'd get into that. Imagine you are the creator of the universe and you can individually craft shit into diamonds. How sweet is that? Everyone has a different facet. Everyone has a unique purpose. If you were the creator of the universe, turning dirt into diamonds, if I might put it that way, that's more geologically correct, and sounds a lot better on the, on the replay. But to turn us into diamonds... Is it no wonder God delights in us? At one point um, in one of the prophets, Zechariah chapter 4, while Israel was in exile for its disobedience and uh, just turning from God, the prophet wrote, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. Now, you may never have had the experience of being in a parent's arms, having them sing quietly to you. You probably saw it on the movies or just heard stories. But imagine that God so loves us, he wants to hold us close, rejoice over us, and sing to us. Another one of the prophets, Hosea, was given a task by God to um, enact, enact um, that Hosea was supposed to be God and his wife, Gomer, that was her name, was supposed to be Israel. And Gomer was, in all truth and reality, she was a prostitute. And, Ho- and Hosea was supposed to demonstrate a love for her that was um, symbolic of God's love for his people Israel. And at one point he writes, Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give her back her vineyards, her inheritance, and will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. This guy 
actually went to great lengths to woo his prostitute wife back to him, symbolizing all the love that God will pour into us when we are at our worst, most rebellious, disgusting, how could you do that, turning from him. This is the love that God has. This is the love he has for his inheritance, us. And then you've got Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, where the father breaks every social convention and day by day is looking out the window for the son who took his money and ran and looking out for a son and looking out for a son. And when he sees his son coming, runs down the road to meet him, which is quite a task for any elderly person to do, I know. And all the more so when the father was in the right and the son was in the wrong, but the father could not help but run toward the son to embrace him and throw a big party in his honor. That is the love of God toward us. We are the riches of his inheritance, and he is so proud of us. The world values money and success and fame and power, but God values us. And it doesn't matter whether you are you or Mother Teresa God has an equal love for his children. And Paul wants us to know that because surely it will affect the way we live if we know that our daddy loves us. And so Paul wants us to understand hope and he wants us to understand that we are dearly loved. And he also wants us to understand there is incomparably great power available for us. Resurrection power. I'm going to go back and read the verses again. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That is a heck load of power. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Enthroned him. Uh, Sat him right down next to him as equal far above every rule, authority, power, dominion, the name that is invoked, and not only in the present age and the age to come. And then he also placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. So Paul's shown us what this resurrection power has already accomplished so that, I mean, if God can raise from the dead, surely he can balance my checkbook for me? The tasks that I call on him for, I I probably should ask him for more. Probably should ask him for more, not less. He raised Christ from the dead. Jesus rules with God, and Jesus controls everything. All these words that are used, power and authorities, it doesn't matter what the institution is that's bringing you down, whether it's economic or political or it's a banking institution or a job or whether it's the authority of government or authority of police. It doesn't matter whether it's in heaven or on earth. It doesn't really matter if it's natural causes bringing us down, if it's supernatural, if it's demonic influence bringing us down. Jesus is over that. Jesus has authority over Everything, there is nothing, no one 
outside of the influence of Jesus. And this isn't, as I've said before, this isn't Star Wars theology. We're not waiting to see whether good or evil wins. Good has triumphed, and evil will be vanquished. So whether it's an addiction, of some sort of mental bondage, um, hooks, hang-ups, and habits, as they say in Celebrate Recovery, nothing is outside the influence of Christ. The irreparable relationship, um, the unbeatable addiction, the sinking financial ship. People who say, well, that's just the way I am. Well, that's not the way you need to be. That's the way you were born, but you can be reborn in the power of Christ. And the resurrection power can transform whatever aspect of you needs transformation. You know, again, in, um, with Craig's mom's illness, there's this little army, army of advocates working with her. You've got your primary care physician, and you've got your oncologist, and you've got home health care aides, and you've got hospital nurses, and you've got lab technicians, and you've got hospice nurses, and physical therapists, and rehab staff, and case managers, and social workers, and occupational therapists, and chaplains. And, uh, you know, we have this whole little human army working on behalf of this woman. And people say, how long do you think she has? I don't know. It's in God's hands. And as scary as that is, in another way, there is no fear in that at all. Because you know what? It's in God's hands. And she is in God's hands. And nothing can thwart the will of God. And I do not need to fear. I do not need to stay awake at night. Worrying because she is in God's hands and her destiny is secured. Very confident of that. I think sometimes the biggest obstacle to us over appropriating that power that God makes available to us is our own pride and self-sufficiency or maybe our shame. It's like, well, I better clean myself up before I go to God. No, 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 no. You go to God and God does the cleaning. Resurrection power. I got permission from our buddy Sam. A lot of you have already seen this on Facebook. Sam was with us for a number of months in um, 2017. He had this on Facebook this past week. Let me read this to you. A year ago today, I maimed myself. This is January 28th. In a blackout, I grabbed a razor knife and started slashing away at my arm. Four deep cuts, severed skin, muscles, veins, nerves, arteries, and a tendon. I got 52 stitches in my skin alone, let alone the muscles stitched back together and the arteries that were stitched shut. I remember in the ER my arm being held together in an ace bandage and having to keep it elevated. It was swollen and purple, and I had lost all feeling. I thought I was going to lose my arm. And I would rather have gone all together than to go in pieces. And when it became apparent I wasn't going to bleed out and die or lose my arm, it was clear that I had fucked up my tendon. I could barely move my last two fingers. My thumb, pointer finger, and middle finger wouldn't close. I couldn't make a fist. I was told I would be lucky if I would ever be able to gain full movement and functionality, that I would require months, maybe years of physical therapy, but I would never play the piano again. 
and I'd be lucky if I could ever hold a chord on the guitar. I had no surgery on my tendon and no physical therapy. Nerve damage is still a thing, but today I play both the guitar and piano better than I ever have. I was healed. I believe I was healed supernaturally by God. I believe there is still music in me that has not been birthed into the world yet. Yet I struggle sometimes to think that God is even real, even though my very life is miraculous. I can't believe it's been a year. God continues to work miracles in my life every day. Today I pray that God uses my scars to remind me of his resurrection power and love for me. Point proven. I, I saw this. And I went, went home Sunday night and I saw that post and thought, you couldn't have primed an example better to support what this passage is saying. That God loves. When we're at our basest, God loves. Most rebellious, God loves. Resurrection power to heal miraculously. It's not just Sam's arms that's been healed. You know that if you know Sam. He's been clean four months. And he lives and loves, lives for and loves the Lord and gives credit to God. Using his scars to remind him of resurrection power and his love for me. God's love is so real. It's a life-giving power. It's not only a power over death, it's a power over what slowly eats away and is killing me. And if God has all supernatural creation and all history under his control, maybe I need to put my worries in a different perspective. I mean, I still have things I worry about. Still got to be concerned about things. But they go into a different perspective when I know the God of the universe has all things figured out and loves me, and offers security now because the future is sure. There's one more thing. God has done all this for his church. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, this is Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God so loves the world, but he has a special relationship with his church, believers. He calls them his body. And we know that this fullness is talking about completion and totality. But what we don't know is what in the world this passage is saying is full of what. This entire passage in Greek, what, what it was written in, is 169 words with no punctuation. We don't have a clue. What's filling what here? Um, Steve was talking Friday about you don't know whether you can trust what you read. But very often when there is sincerity in what's being written, you can say, yeah, probably that too. Yeah, probably that too. Yeah, probably that too. And there are three different things that could be full of three different things here. And I think each one of them is worth looking at. It could be that Christ is made full by God because Christ was exalted by God. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. God exalted him to the highest place, it says in Philippians, and gave him a name above every name. Every knee will bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth. So, so yeah, Christ is made full by God, and he's our advocate. Uh, he's our savior. It's his spirit indwelling us. So it's, it's pretty good to know that he genuinely is God.
the church being made full by Christ? Well, I hope so, because if Christ isn't in this church, we're just a club, just a social club. We better start charging dues. Or maybe we're just a cultural institution like the Church of Norway or Finland or some other support-the-status-quo-type institution. But as long as the church is made full by Christ, like last week, all the promises that, um, the last couple weeks, the promises we've talked about, God's blessings are not just to the individuals, but to us as a body, the church. And if God delights in us individually, he delights in the bodies, the churches that have established to worship him. So whatever battle you may think scum is in, whatever shortcomings in the church you think are never going to be overcome, this church needs to be secure in the hope of its calling. This church, scum of the earth, needs to know that God loves us tremendously, and this church needs to call on the power that is available to us. Third option, maybe Christ is made full and complete by his church. That could sound a little right. Wait, 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 there's no way a bunch of humans can complete Christ. Well, maybe. Let me give you an. Ex- let me give you a thought. Let's say Todd Blackstone is working on a project with five-year-old Jack, and he says, "Oh, thanks, buddy, man. I could not have done this without you, Jack." And I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, yes, you could, Todd. In fact, you could probably do it a lot faster, a lot more efficiently. It would look a lot better too." But that's only if the task is to get the thing done. If the task that Todd has in mind when he has Jack helping him out is to build a relationship, to share love, to demonstrate attitudes, maybe even to show to somebody else who's hanging out with them the depth of a father-son bond, well, then he couldn't have done it without Jack. And I think it's the same in, in Christ and in the church. It's because God wants to accomplish salvation among humans that he gifts us as humans to be his helpers, to participate in his ministry, to be his witnesses, his instruments, so to speak. In that way, when we do the work that Christ has set out as his goal, redemption, when we act redemptively toward a person, maybe even leading them into a relationship with Christ, then we have helped fulfill Christ in that sense. I want to close with an illustration. We have a friend who's just a few years younger than us. He's Albanian, and he is the most effusive person I have ever met, Eastern European, next to Italy. If you're wondering about that, tells you something. Uli is just always excited. And when we go to visit him, he is so excited. He claps his hands a lot. And he calls Craig my professor. I don't think he can bear to call him Craig, and Craig won't listen to Dr. Blomberg. So Uli will look at me and say, I am so excited to have you and my professor here. My professor, I am so excited. Can I get you anything? I want you to be comfortable while you're in my house. I am so excited that you're here. And Uli has been known, he has two children, they're now 18 and 16, introducing them, or at random times, Uli will suddenly burst out with, Aaron Dochi, I love you. Abby Dochi, I love you. 
And when they're with other people, he'll go, this is my son, Aaron. I love him. This is my daughter, Abby. I am so proud of her. Now, you can imagine how much an 18 and 16-year-old love this. You know, and you see them. They're rolling their eyes. They're hanging their heads. And then you notice there's a little smile on their face. And they're standing a little straighter. And they walk a little more confidently. Because you know what? They know their father loves them. And it's not because he lavishes great things on them. I mean, they're, they're comfortable. It's not because of the gifts he gives them. It's because he tells them constantly, I love you. And I honestly think, folks, that sometimes we are prevented from seeing the love of God because we're waiting for the thing, the thing that he will give us that will prove his love where he's shouting at us in every page of scripture. I love you, Sarah. I love you, Benjamin. I love you, Christina. I love you. I had to pick on her, but we don't want to miss that because the eyes of our hearts are closed or the eyes of our hearts are narrow minded or we're unwilling to open them to see admit the hope of our calling, the love God has for us, and the power he's made available for us. Dave asked last week, if we believed God were all for me, if I believed God was all for me, what would I act like? How would I be? And I want us to revisit that question, but also add tonight, if all these promises are for the church as well, If God is completely for scum of the earth church, how should we be? And as we go into communion, there will be an opportunity if you want to pray with somebody about a personal issue, somebody else's issue, church issue. There'll be folks down in the prayer cave to pray with you. And we'll go from these words, let's take them with us into our celebration of communion now. Because what greater example of I love you is there that somebody would die for you take a bullet for you throw themselves in front of the train for you give up their job maybe so that you can save yours stay home so you can go out I mean it goes from the sublime to the ordinary but Christ's sacrifice for us was the supreme one The sinless Jesus gave his life so that the sins of every one of us could be forgiven. And that we celebrate in communion. He asked us to remember it with bread and wine. We'll use grape juice. The broken bread symbolizing his broken body. The juice symbolizing the blood that spilled out on our behalf. So when you take a piece of bread or a gluten-free cracker, dip it in the cup of juice and remember the effusiveness. Sorry, all you guys who don't like to show a lot of emotion. The effusive, lavish love of God. The security we have in our future, our hope, and the power that we need to begin to draw on for our lives and for the life of our church. So come, let's receive communion and remember.